Uh, it's James here. And I'm David. Uh, and you're listening to Track Meet, where we pit two songs against each other and see who is who comes out on top on Victorious Lane. What? Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this week, this week we're doing the the subject. The topic is banned from the radio, and that is not a banned from the radio. That is banned from the radio. Like, get out of here! You're no longer allowed on the radio. Um, Banished from the radio. Um, so, I think that I'm probably going to be desperately going to Google slash Wikipedia for like songs that were banned from the radio. Now, let's be <laughs> let's get clear with one thing here. Yes, the 9/11 list that Clear Channel put out Is must bull- be excluded. Shit. Yes, absolutely. It- Are we cursing on this show? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yes. All right, good. Good, good. Okay, yeah, because that list is bullshit. Um, <laughs> no, um, that... Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, now, that's not to say that the reasons for the songs being banned from the radio won't be bullshit, but that list is a big, huge, steaming pile of bullshit, and I think that we should uh, avoid it and look for smaller piles of bullshit. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, there there are so many other songs that were banned for way more interesting and unique yeah. reasons. So, no, abs- absolutely, absolutely, we've got a we've got a good plan. I think one of the best things you can go listen to right now to to think about this is the wonderful podcast "Cocaine and Rhinestones," mm-hmm. discussing okay. the history of country music. Talks about Loretta Lynn's "The Pill." Sure. And oh, why was that banned? <laughs> was it so in some way controversial? Hmm. I wonder. <laughs> in any case. So the special category, I don't know. I went with what you know. What's the audacity of this song? Like, how audaciously controversial is it? I I like that. That's sort of what I was thinking. Like level, like almost. I don't believe in banning stuff, so not. I'm not going to say justifiable, but like I think most. No, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> most like, understandable. Yeah, like unsurprisingly banned. <laughs> I'm like, no, yeah, that that adds up. <laughs> I think that I think that's a good I think that's a good category. Do we need to add a qualifier to this that this would be a group that would get played on the radio? I, I think band means they were on the radio and then they were not allowed on the radio anymore. Yeah, because yeah. I'm I'm just like Gigi Allen isn't going to be able to be on this list. Right, right. All right. Yeah, I think that's. I think. I think. Yeah, I think uh, would have been played on the radio, but then, like, maybe you know, had other songs on the radio, but this one was not was was taken out. Yeah, unless there's like just a perfectly ridiculous story, like it is. Right. It is seriously this person's first single, but it was just so ridiculously controversial that they they had to ban it publicly. Right. Like, if there's a right. public story behind it, I'm willing to get behind that. All right, cool. So, uh, let's go listen to some naughty, naughty songs. <laughs> let's do it. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Track Meet. Uh, we are talking about songs that were banned from the radio today, um, and we are doing so with uh, two people that, let's just say, 
we're really thankful that they haven't sued us and banned <laughs> us from podcasting. What would even be the logistics of that? Let's, I don't know, maybe forge new legal... No, don't. Wait, hold on. I'm encouraging the wrong thing. <laughs> oh, um, no, stop it. You is setting precedent. <laughs> we could break new legal ground. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, please don't. It's the Nelson sisters uh, of Historical Hotties. Hi. Yay! Hi. If you haven't listened to Historical Hotties, stop this <laughs> and go listen to that and then come back to this. Hi, Whitney, Lindsay. It's yes. lovely to have you on this easily accessed call that we did. Um, <laughs> Everyone this just doing great on communicating. Is simple and Miracle works flawlessly all of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we are going to be talking about band songs. Let's get right into it because we have a lot of stuff to discuss. Mm-hmm. Whitney, would you like to start us off? Oh, okay, sure. I was not anticipating <laughs> that, but yeah, let's <laughs> let's go. I will start us off. <laughs> so my song is Louie Louie. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so Very it nice. is. It was written and composed by Richard Berry in 1955, uh, but it's best known for the 1963 hit version by the Kingsmen. The song went on to be a huge hit for them, becoming one of the most recorded songs of all time. But Richard Berry received almost no financial benefit for writing it until the 1980s because he signed away his rights to the song in 1959, which is the story of a lot of black musicians and popular Mm -hmm. music happened here again. So the reason that I chose this song in particular, it faced bands on multiple different U.S. radio stations due to possibly obscene lyrics because nobody (laughs) could understand what he was singing. Uh, And we'll talk more about that. I have that mentioned in in categories once we start breaking things down. But just to give you kind of uh, an impression of how much impact the song itself has had, it has been recognized by organizations and publications for its influence on the history of rock and roll. A partial list, I could go on and on and on, but the partial list includes (laughs) Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Grammy Hall of Fame, National Public Radio, VH1, Rolling Stone Magazine, the National Endowment for the Arts. The Recording Industry Association of America all have given this song, like, awards. And there's also a International Louie Louie Day every year on April 11th. And there was a Louie Louie Parade here in Philly from 1985 to 1989. There was a Louie Fest in Tacoma from 2003 to 2012. And there's an ongoing Louie Louie Parade and Festival in Peoria. And there was an attempt in 1985 to make it the state song of Washington that was unsuccessful. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah. Catchy song, gibberish lyrics, although not gibberish. We'll talk about that more. But um, (laughs) fairly unintelligible. A lot of people think they know what the song says and they don't. But it is a very good song and it is a very, very well, uh, it's a lauded song by the uh you know industry elite so that's why i chose it perfect well that is a strong contender Lindsay, do you have another strong contender to uh to bring to the table i do it's very different in tone mine is (laughs) one of the most eerie and beautiful but tragic songs ever to be banned from the airwaves and it is strange fruit 
by Billie Holiday. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. She first sang and recorded it in 1939. It was written by a Jewish teacher, Abel Mirapol, as a poem and published in 1937. It protested American racism, particularly the lynching of black people. Uh, lynchings had reached a peak in the South at the turn of the century, but continued there and in other regions of the United States. The song's lyrics are an extended <laughs> metaphor linking a tree's fruit with lynching victims. Um, Mirapol was inspired when he saw a picture of a lynching and was just absolutely horrified by the crowds around this tree with two men hanging in it. So he wrote the poem and then he wanted to set it to music and his wife and the singer Laura Duncan performed it as a protest song in New York venues in the late 1930s, including at Madison Square Garden, when Billie Holiday heard it and asked if she could record a version of the song with a little bit differently arranged music. So that is my pick. Awesome. Lovely uh, to have you here bringing this sunshine. Uh, as always um, <laughs> I know. Just trying to give you a light, bouncy tune, you know. <laughs> Just drop lynching in the middle of your podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. David, cheer us up a little bit with your uh, little boppy tune. My song is God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Mm. Mm. God Save the Queen The fascist regime It made you a moron Potential hate bomb God Save the Queen Released as a single May 27th, 1977, many considered it to be a written directly in response to the Queen's Silver Jubilee, but that is not true according to the band. It's widely considered as a direct assault on the monarchy. And Johnny Rotten once stated this perfect line, You don't write God Save the Queen because you hate the English race. You write a song like that because you love them and you're fed up with them being mistreated. This song peaked at number two on the BBC charts, though rumors have always swirled and evidence points to these rumors that it was actually the best-selling single of its time. But forces were at play to force it to number two. And I'll talk about that more when we get to the band. Okay, perfect. And that, that leaves me. I did the song Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles. Tonight you're mine completely You give your love so sweetly Tonight the light of love is in your eyes But will you love me This was a song uh, written by Jerry Goffin and Carol King. The Financial Times has a, a column about music, which is 
something. And uh, <laughs> but like, I mean, it's super well written. So like, I was pretty pretty pleased with it. It says the Shirelles needed a, a follow up to their mi- minor 1960 hit "Tonight's the Night," which saw lead vocalist Shirley Owens torn over a lover's offer to quote turn the lights down low and make her quote feel all aglow. Well, I don't know. You might break my heart. Goffin and King were so excited they simply continued the narrative. King bashed out the melody in an afternoon with their infant daughter in a playpen beside the piano, then dashed out to play Mahjong with a friend, leaving a note for her husband near the tape recorder reading, Please write. (laughs) (laughs) And and Goffin says, I listened to it a few times. Then I put myself in the place of a woman. Yes, it was sort of autobiographical. I thought, what would a girl sing to a guy if they made love that, that night? It was the first song by an all uh, black female group to go to number one on mm. the Hot 100. And it was, of course, you can't read an article about the Shirelles version without hearing about uh, Carol King's amazing version like a decade later. It got banned. I could only, the only details I could find about its banning were that it was banned, quote, on several radio stations, basically for the idea that they were having sex. Yep. So pretty pretty ridiculous reason and so yeah it's that's that's pretty much that's pretty much all i have for for like a background for this song it's sort of a classic and uh i've loved it for a long time so i was really excited to do it because i thought it was ridiculous that it got banned <laughs> so um that is my pick so let's move I, into i do real quick i just wanted to say one thing i wanted to, to talk very quickly about this song that does not actually qualify, but I really wanted to talk about in this because it was never banned, but it's wild okay. that it was never banned. So in 1979, yes. there was a 16-year-old, Brenda Ann Spencer, who fired a gun at children in a school playground, and she injured a bunch of people. Uh, she killed two adults. All of the, the kids were survived but were injured. And when they asked why she did it, she said, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. And um, at the time, the... the um, Boomtown Rats. The Boomtown Rats, yeah. He was working at a radio station. Uh, Geldof was the one who wrote it, Bob Geldof. And uh, he was working at a radio station at the local college and saw that, like, come out on the ticker. And he was... He couldn't stop thinking about this girl who killed... Tried to kill a bunch of people. And that was her excuse of why, is I don't like Mondays. And so many people tried to get the song banned, and this is obviously preschool shooting type era, but her parents campaigned so hard to get it off the air. There were all sorts of parent groups trying to get it off the air, and no one managed to get it banned from any radio station. And I think that's wild when you compare it, especially with something like Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, (laughs) which just insinuates that sex happens. Right, yeah. Yeah. Or the song Splish Splash got banned just because he never talks about putting clothes back on before he goes into the party. (laughs) That is, that's really ridiculous as well. I found the song uh, Kodachrome by Paul Simon Mm -hmm. got banned in Britain. Britain did a lot of banning of like copyright stuff, which kind of makes sense to me a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, brand names. Name brand. Yeah. Yeah. But in America, it got banned because the first line is, when I think back on all that crap I learned in high school. So the word crap was objectionable enough to ban it, um, (laughs) which is wild. And then when you think about, like, Shake, Rattle, and Roll by Bill Haley and the Comets, has a line (laughs) that says, I'm like a one-eyed tomcat peeping in a a seafood seafood store. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, ZZ Top got tube steak boogie played all over FM radio, so... (laughs) <laughs> my dingling 
Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's and then... It's wild yeah. what gets banned and what doesn't. This, that's why this is such a fascinating category. Well, Rocky Mountain High is my favorite. Yeah. Rocky drug Mountain use. High was banned? Yeah, because it implies drug I use. I didn't even know that. Even though it, it, it implies drug use in that it has the word high in it, and that's all. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, I had no you idea. Ban John Denver, something's going wrong, but yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it really is one of those things that's very revealing about cultures. Because when you look at what was banned in like Britain versus what was banned in America, the stuff in America is almost mm-hmm. always about sex. And the stuff in Britain is very frequently about like copyright. I noticed that too when I was doing <laughs> research. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that is hilarious. All right. Well, we've just Ugh. tangented you guys way off the. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's get back to the, let's get back to the task at hand. This is already going so well. Whitney, would you like to talk about the music of Louie Louie? Yeah. So the rhythm of the song is actually based on the tune El Loco Chacha, which was popularized by a band leader, Rene Touze. And it's part of a trend that was definitely happening at the time that this song was recorded of sort of Latin influence in popular music, like a lot of that sort of swing 60s, like 50s into the 60s music had a lot of Latin influences and was very popular. And then the Kingsman's lead singer, Jack Eli, based it not on the Richard Berry version, but on a different cover from the Rockin' Robin Roberts with the Fabulous Wailers. And when he was showing it to the band, Jack Eli of the Kingsman, actually accidentally unintentionally introduced a change in the rhythm. He said, uh, I was showing the others how to play it with a one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three beat instead of one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four. So they actually dropped out a beat because he was just relaying it to the rest of the band wrong. Uh, (laughs) The band played before their recording session, the band played a 90 minute version of the song during a gig at a local teen club. And I can't tell you a single song that I would listen to for 90 minutes at a teen club without burning the place down. But it worked because I mean, teen clubs make you want to burn the place down anyway. Well, (laughs) but the Kingsman studio version was recorded in one take the next day. Yeah, because it was like nothing. Yeah. (laughs) They were like, this, wait, two minutes? Yeah, all right. We can do that. That is wild. And then there's a part where the lead singer, where he comes back in too soon before the the reinstatement of a riff that happens in the in the thing and he realizes his mistake and stops the verse short but the band didn't realize that he was stopping short so as a quick fix the drummer covered the pause with a drum fill but the before the verse ended the rest of the band went into the chorus at the point where they expected it to be <laughs> so there's this hot mess of a of a thing that happens but it <laughs> happened in the one take recording and the error is now so embedded in the like consciousness of the song because this version of the song is the one that took over the world that now bands play it that way (laughs) they deliberately duplicate that mistake when they're when they're doing the song (laughs) so it's definitely got the latin influence it's got a very fun dancey rhythm to it uh i love the guitar in louis louis but clearly they were not necessarily ready to make this song when they made it as evidenced (laughs) by him relaying the beat wrong to people and dropping a whole count and then this whole (laughs) riff drum fill thing there's a lot of mistakes and it was very loosey-goosey when they recorded it so i think i'm gonna give it a three in music okay 
It's interesting because there is something weirdly zen about this song because of the way that yeah. all the bugs become features. It's like in Japan when you <laughs> mend a broken bowl with gold to make the flaw yeah. like an artistic focal point. That's kind of what happened yep. with this song. And so it's very, it's, there's something incredibly catchy about this song. I mean, I think it's going to do well in like re-listenability, but it's not like a virtuoso <laughs> performance of like musicianship. So I think I'm going to give it a two. All right. I'm going a three. The song's so drunk and sloppy and I love it. <laughs> the- I really it's- like what Lindsay said about bugs and features. That's very funny. And I think very true of how I feel about this song. I, I just put this song thrives in spite of itself. It moves. <laughs> it keeps moving. It keeps jamming and it keeps having energy the whole way through the thing is i could dance to a 90 minute version of this song because it keeps swinging the whole time yeah like if you're just there to dance this song is perfect for that it is a hot mess so it can't be a perfect take like they all have no clue what they're doing out there including the lead singer who is mumbling the lyrics on purpose but still (laughs) we'll we'll get to that part and so i'll take in there because I love how much of a mess it is and how it still is so infinitely danceable and catchy, it's three for me. I'm going to give it a three and a half because I think that there's something magic to... I know that like the moral of the story is just because you did it in one take doesn't mean that it was anything approaching perfection. <laughs> <laughs> like, if we did it in one take, okay, but could you have done it better on a second take but clearly they were done with the song having got an hour and a half just boggles my mind yeah but i think that this is the kind of thing where four notes and you're there for the whole thing like this comes on the radio and it's like well i'm listening to louie louie now so here we are i'm gonna give it a three and a half because i think that there's something there maybe it was just accident or like you know sort of just falling accidentally into place Mm -hmm. but i think that there's something there that that keeps this music timeless and so i think there's a a little bit of a lightning in a bottle effect that they caught with it like it is sloppy there are mistakes but also it just it all it all just really resonates still (laughs) lightning in a bottle that you accidentally got by sticking a fork in a plug but it worked (laughs) everyone's fine hey uh lindsey speaking nope no, no. There's no transition. Do you want to talk about the, the <laughs> yeah. music of Yeah, it's of very Strange hard Fruit. hard to coast into talking about this song. But um <laughs> so th- there's something just remarkable about this song. It kind of bewitched me with its like eeriness and its beauty when I was like seven and didn't really understand what the subject matter was about. But there's so much emotion in this song. So, I mean, it might be one of the, like, saddest songs you'll ever hear. And Billie Holiday, maybe the greatest singer in the history of jazz, just captures it so perfectly. On the singles, Holiday doesn't start singing until about 70 seconds in. They wanted to open with this intro to kind of get you in a headspace before they started actually singing to like set the scene and draw you into this kind of like weird ghost story. So it starts with um Newton's muted trumpet line that kind of like hovers in the air and then White's minor piano chords sort of come in and then she starts singing and other people might have like overplayed the irony or sort of punched home the moral judgment, but she sings it as though it's like her responsibility to just kind of 
bring you into this eerie tableau to sort of bear witness. Her voice is like soft and dark and it kind of brings you in like a camera lens. I mean, the lyrics do that too, but where it starts kind of abstracted and then it moves you closer to understand, you know, what you're seeing slash being told about. And I just think it's, it's a beautiful use of the human voice as an instrument. Um, she's charismatic, but not ostentatious. And there's just so much like vulnerability and like understatement and intimacy in this song. It's so simple in a lot of ways, but it's just like a real gut punch. And, uh, it, in 1978, Holiday's version of the song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It was also included in the list of Song of the Century by the Recording Industries of America and the National Endowment for the Arts. And it's just such an incredibly powerful piece of art. So I, I'm going to give it a three and a half because I think it's a, it's an incredible use of less is more in a song. Okay. Three and a half. Sounds good. Whitney? Um, I don't know. I think that this, the music is, is haunting, but I also think that this, the simplicity of the music really makes it feel to me like a protest poem that was later put to music. I don't feel like the instrumentation does as much as Billie Holiday's like pacing. I think her control of the song and her flow of the song is what makes it much more so than the instrumentation itself. Like the music part of it, I don't think is the most special part of the song. But I mean, her voice is carrying part of the melody. That's true. That's true. I think that's more, I kind of put that more in production, I think. Like how stuff like the the pause before she comes in and, and that sort of thing, I feel like is more production than music itself. So I, I have that higher in production, but I think for music, for me, it's a two. Okay. I'm going to be that guy for a minute. And I'm going to say that I really wish I had Nina Simone's voice over this arrangement. Cause I don't necessarily jive with Billy's voice that much. That is a personal reaction. So mm-hmm. I'm not like docking a ton of points for that. It's just every time I hear this song, I keep thinking of Nina Simone. I think that's part of the issue is because that's the version I've heard. Mm-hmm. I do think the arrangement is, is the power of the song for me. I agree with everything that's being said about how she's controlling. That is impeccable in what she's doing with it. There's just something about it that I want a richness and a deepness that's not there. And that's just not her voice. I went a three and a half for that reason because I recognize like I love all the elements about it, but there's something where I just keep going back to, but can I, can I have Nina Simone's voice over this? That would be really great. I mean, I adore Nina Simone. Uh, she was one of my picks in a historical hotties episode and, and I stand her hard, but I think this song, there's just, I think this is Holiday's song, but I can understand, you know, that's like a taste thing. So I, that, I exactly. That's why I didn't go any lower than that because I couldn't justify it any other way. It was a personal preference issue only. Okay. I'm sort of torn on this because this is just like we've said, haunting and just like it's a tapestry of it brings you, it sucks you in. And like there's that long intro that's like building tension and, and it feels like it's so cinematic and everything. And I recognize that and I love it when I'm listening to it. I can't think of how it goes right now, though. Like, I can't, like, 
bring it to mind. It's a good, mm-hmm. it's a good atmosphere. But like, I can't bring like a John Tr- John Coltrane song to mind either. It's not. Maybe it's not for like catchy melodies to for this particular genre. I think it's gorgeous, but I think that like I hear her voice that it goes into music. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a three. I love the music, but I think that there are that. I mean, the lyrics are just. I think there's stronger places in a very very strong song. So I'm gonna say a three for for Strange Fruit. Okay, David, God Save the Queen. Boy, I'm looking at my score on this, and I got to rethink it a little bit. But I, I will, I will put this out there. This is one of their best songs. I would say there's probably four that are head and shoulders above the rest of what they put out, which are EMI, Anarchy in the UK, Pretty Vacant, and this. Those are probably yeah. the top four. Mm-hmm. Which, unlike some of the other weird middling stuff that they have, which at this point, because it's been done so much, is mediocre punk rock. At the time, it landed like a bomb because nobody had ever heard it before. Right. Um, but this is one of those that actually lasts. Johnny Rotten does not sing on this song very much. He did later on in his career, and John Lydon can sing if he wants to. He just chooses not to. I do really love the guitars and the drums on this song. They're not complicated, but they are consistent, which is weird to say about this band because they're renowned for being sloppy. (laughs) But on this song, they're actually together and tight and in the rhythm. And really, the weakest point of this song is God bless that junkie, Sid Vicious cannot fucking play bass. <laughs> right. Like, he is barely playing on this song, and you cannot hear him. I still love how much depth this song has, despite it being very simple. There's something about the interplay of what they're doing, and it's not just the ferocity, but it's reined in a little bit on this song, which it wasn't always done for them. I'm going to give this one a three. Right, Whitney, what say you? For me, it's a four. I think that the music for God Save the Queen is just such, like, driving punk with, like, a peppy... I don't know, it's such that perfect mix of peppy and angry that is hard to come by in a lot of early punk. I feel like you either went one way or the other, and they just hit that balance so perfectly for me that I think that the music is one of the best parts of the song for me is the the instrumentation and the music so that's my vote is a four i'll take it i mean (laughs) driving is something i was gonna say about it too it's definitely like prototypical punk right like this is one of the first things that would come to a lot of people's mind when they think about punk and i do think for them this is a very tight song yeah and (laughs) yeah it is there's just something like relentless but somehow in a good way about this song you know it feels like it should be overwhelming and it's not it like carries you up in it so i am going to give it a three and a half all right um so like i'm a ramones guy (laughs) but when it comes to music this versus let's say anything by the ramones in the 70s um wins by a lot. Um, um, I would say once you get to Rocket to Russia, it's a dead even tie. But if you're talking about that first record, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> Fair. The guitar in this sounds killer. Yeah. And I, it's hard. This is a hard one because it's so early. Like we said, it's pretty, you know, it's proto punk. So it's, it's so early on in what this sound was going to become that I think 
someone has said, like, I think it was David said that, like, the sound at the time, yeah, it was definitely David, was, you know, bombastic. But now it just sounds like, yes, this is what this sound sounds like. This They're doing the punk thing. Yeah, I've heard it. They're not doing anything different because they were doing everything different. So, ah, uh, I'm going to give it a three because I, I want Johnny Rotten to learn his lesson and try harder. <laughs> he did. Um, it just was with another band. <laughs> I, and Public Image Limited is, is lovely yeah. and, 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 and nice. So... I found a, a series on Stereo Gum where this guy is basically ripping off this British blog where they're going through all the number ones on the UK singles chart, and he's doing that for America. So I felt that was appropriate for this episode um, where we're ripping <laughs> you all off. It's called The Number Ones, and it's written by this guy, uh, Tom Brehan. And he says about this song, all the ingredients of those classic girl group songs were there from the beginning. The yearning but poised lead vocal, the fun little intricacies in the backing harmonies, the grand but stately backbeat, the strings playfully flitting all through it. It's a perfect pop sound, a sound that took universal teenage emotions and made them sound regal and sophisticated. So basically, my pitch for this is that this is like what I love about girl group songs. And there's like a, like a playlist of like five of them that are like perfect. So I'm going to go four for Will You Love Me Tomorrow because I think this hits exactly what I am looking for in this kind of song, in this kind of genre. It nails it. So I'm going to give it a four. Mm-hmm. Whitney? Yeah. So I really love the surf rockiness of the guitar riff um, that mm-hmm. starts at the very beginning. But the wall of sound style recording drowns it out pretty quickly. I'm not sure. And I know that... Part of the whole reason that they got them to agree to do this was because of the strings part. I'm not sure that the strings in the music adds anything to the song for me. To me, it makes it feel mm. a little bit more stuffy when I feel like mm. they started out a little bit more hip and funky. And I think uh-huh. that um, the the strings don't really do it for me, but I really like the consistency of the drums that, that yep. make it such a good song to dance to. And I do think that the the vocals on this are just off the charts. So I'm going to give it a three and a half. I think the wall of sound style of recording is the only thing that makes it not a four for me. Okay. Lindsay? Um, I, I agree with you that I think that this is like a really great example of this kind of music. You know, if you were trying to, mm-hmm. to, to teach somebody about it, this would be a great pick. Um, I do like the kind of weird operatic epicness of it and of like a lot of songs about teenagers because teenagehood feels very operatic when you're in it um (laughs) i I will say that this is when i was putting them all in a playlist and like today as i was doing stuff and to kind of listen to all of these songs a couple of times and this is the one that the like melody is quickest to bring up for me you know like if somebody were asked Uh me to hum all these songs this would be the first one and the easiest one i would go to I think the music stands out to me more than any other part of this song, more than any of our other songs, you know, that like the music is the first thing I notice about it. So I would give it a three and a half because I think it's very solid in the music department. David, what what do you you got to say? I mean, there's nothing like the sound. There's there. There are definitely groups that came out around the same time. The wistfulness, the romance of this is classic. And in some ways, in thinking about romance and thinking about those feelings more and more, this song comes back up again and again to me. Just like, oh, it's just makes you feel all the warm, fuzzy heart feelings. 
<laughs> um, and there's a reason it sticks around. I'm going to give it a four because there are other places that I would dock it that I don't think apply to the music. I think that's the okay. issue here. The songwriting and the music itself is so good, there are other issues that I've got with the song. Okay, fair enough. I'm looking forward to, to those getting rolled out. <laughs> <laughs> Whitney, let's talk about the lyrics of Louie Luai. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm just going to keep on switching it up. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so the actual lyrics tell the first person story of a Jamaican sailor returning to the island to see his lady love. That's what the actual song is about. The FBI, and more on that later, <laughs> concluded that they were, quote, unable to interpret any of the wording in the record. <laughs> so that tells you something about where this song ranks as far as scoring lyrics. When you look at the actual lyrics, in amongst a bunch of mostly filler words that are nonsense, is a lot of kind of racially charged stereotypes about Jamaicans like it does not appear to have been like I know that the first the man who wrote it is black but I do not believe he is Jamaican and I think that that's an interesting take on it when you look at it from that perspective it's also the original song that he recorded was pretty much ignored by everybody it got almost no notice at all but it's a much more laid-back surfy kind of chill song than this very like aggressive sort of rocky song but i definitely think that lyrics is not the strong suit for this song i don't think that it's what they you can't hear any of the words that they're saying when they sing it in this version the song the <laughs> song itself the fbi couldn't even figure out what they were saying and when you actually look into what the the lyrics are they're you know pretty pretty basic tons of filler words and to me seem a little bit like racial stereotyping. So I'm going to give it a one in lyrics. I don't think that this is a strong suit for it at all. Wow. Yeah. I think that's the first one. Nope. Never mind. Um, <laughs> I forgot. I forgot. Rihanna hated my song last time. So uh, second one that we've ever had. <laughs> Lindsay, what do you got to say? Um, I will yeah. say though, it's fun to sing along with. Even yeah. if you don't know the words and even like whatever, it's, it's fun to still, try to sing along with it. I mean, that's why I think it got a strong music rating because it is yes. the music that you want to like replicate, you know, because you don't know what you're saying and nobody knows what they're saying. And I, I don't think I'm with you. It's a one for me in lyrics because first of all, they're intelligible. So to know them, you would have to actually like look them up. And then when you do, you kind of wish you had it. So it's a one for me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I gotta do a one. There's, I, there's nothing there's nothing like aggressively racist in it. It's just very much it's like going to a tiki bar version of something and saying that you experienced Hawaii. <laughs> like you didn't. Uh it had nothing to do with it. It's a sort of, you know, white colonizer take on something. And mm -hmm. even though it was written by a black guy, I still feel like it's a white colonizer take on a Jamaican sailor returning home. So I think to me, like the other part of it is that it's not particularly interesting or unique. Like you, right. if if it were amazing poetry, but also really culturally insensitive, <laughs> we might have an argument here for a different score. <laughs> but it's boring. <laughs> Even if they were doing, right. like, iambic pentameter compound rhymes, then you would be still high points, even if... Yeah, I could see that. We'd, we'd at least have an argument to make about it. But, like, yeah. I think I think what really just makes it an easy choice for a one is 
the only thing we care about is that chorus and right. the title of the song. And it's a killer, fun chorus, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, I am thinking about it right now. First of all, let me just say what it would have been like to be in the FBI in the 60s. Boy, you yeah. never know what your wow. job was going to be. What a wild ride. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, you're going to listen to this record and you're going to figure out what they're saying. Okay. And then I realized that even though, yes, the only words that I know are the title. And then I think he says ship in there. I'm not sure. I don't even know what Luai Luai, is that his name? Is that the name of the ship? Is that the name of, what What are we even talking about here? And then I can't bring to mind anything else other than gibberish. I guess a one makes sense. I just, I'm just flabbergasted. <laughs> I just am and just really blown away. Well, everybody so badly wants this song to contain something illicit. Right. It's like it, I can't understand it, so it must be bad. Which mm-hmm. I think is, is a little bit telling about America. <laughs> okay, so speaking of telling about America, oh, gosh. hey, Lindsay. Oh, that was probably <laughs> the best transition we're going to get into this song. Probably. <laughs> All right, so Strange Fruit, like I said, was originally a poem written by the Jewish-American writer, teacher, and songwriter Abel Mirapol, which, by the way, I found out some stuff about him that makes me want to do a whole bunch more research when I was doing this, because he had a very interesting life. But he <laughs> he published it under his pseudonym, Lewis Allen, as a protest against lynching. And in the poem, he expressed his horror at these lynchings, um, inspired by the Lawrence Bittler photograph of the 1930 lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Ship in Marion, Indiana. He published the poem originally under the title Bitter Fruit in 1937 in the New York Teacher uh, Union magazine of the Teachers Union, but later he changed the name from Bitter to Strange because he thought Bitter was too like harshly judgmental from the get-go, whereas Strange evoked a haunting sense of something out of joint. It puts listeners in the shoes of a curious observer spying the hanging shapes from afar and moving closer towards a sickening realization. So he thought it drew you into a discovery more where he thought the bitter might seem too aggressive and stop people from even engaging with the work. So he asked Earl Robinson to set his poem to music. He set Strange Fruit to music himself when nobody would would do it for him. His protest song gained a certain success in and around New York. His wife and black civil rights activist and vocalist Laura Duncan performed it at Madison Square Garden. And it is both incredibly visceral and, like, beautiful. The I think the real power from it comes from the way that he does take, like, this sort of objective third person perspective that like as of somebody discovering this not knowing what it is and also the way he really contrasts very beautiful imagery with really like harsh shocking imagery so the lyrics are southern trees bear a strange fruit blood on the leaves and blood at the root black body swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees pastoral scene of the gallant south the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth Scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, and the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. So I think these, I know, it is not comfortable, but I think it is beautifully done. So for me, the lyrics of this song are a four. Yep. 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 (laughs) For sure. 
super yeah. evocative, moving. Yeah, they're just really great lyrics. Yeah, it's a four for me, dog. Yeah, exactly what he wanted to do with this poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's any giving it anything less than a four is a travesty, and and you didn't hear that poem just now. I mean, like, it's just ugh. It's yeah. so it's so amazing. It's so like gallant South is like oof. the like bitter irony and sarcasm in that line. Oh, and, yeah, it's so harsh and so great and like oh bulging. Oh man, just everything about that is so great. Yeah, four fours across the board. Mm-hmm. David, God save the Queen. God save the Queen. I will say this: they are better than I realized they were. Part of it is it's hard to tell exactly what. Mm-hmm. Johnny's saying when he sings but when you're actually reading the lyrics I was pretty damn surprised how well he nailed some of this stuff it it vacillates between like teenager fake anarchy poetry in their journal with some <laughs> with by the second verse I really think they nail some lines the the whole second verse goes god save the queen because tourists are money and our figurehead is not what she seems Oh, God, save history. God, save your mad parade. Oh, Lord, God, have mercy. All crimes are paid. And then he gets into, I mean, when there's no future, how can there be sin? We're the flowers in the dustbin. We're the poison in your human machine. We're the future, your future. That's the killer part of it. When we get to the no future and and basically yeah. just shoving it in the face of saying, you shouldn't just be afraid <laughs> of the fact that we're angry and we're young. You should be afraid of the fact that we are the future citizens. We're the ones you're going to have to face. Mm-hmm. And you're ruining our lives right now. So what do you think is going to happen to you? Yeah. I mean, they're to snotty. To be honest, I don't feel very different about the world right now. Than <laughs> I, know, I, I know. Somebody who has been existentially <laughs> terrified about climate change for like a long time now. Uh, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so this still resonates in a way that you would you don't expect that the like rebellion music of any generation is going to age well because it's so of a time right. and yet this speaks very much to politics in the world right now and how people feel about politics in the world right now yeah and the sort of like we're inheriting your mess but also look out because you know, we're going to be in charge of figuring out what happens to the people that did this and whatever. I just feel like the whole message of the song very much still resonates now. And hey, same queen. The problem with the lot queen. of 70s UK punk music and the clash or the prototypes for this is it's almost too topical. It's almost too pointed right at that moment. The Sex Pistols never did that. They hit at the big, broad idea, which is partially because they were manufactured, but nevertheless the fact that johnny rotten got these lyrics out early on when he was still basically a snotty ass teenager on mushrooms constantly (laughs) it's pretty freaking great i'm gonna give it a three and a half because i do think like it devolves into just crappy teen poetry every once in a while but some of it's really good (laughs) yeah i think it's some of the most eloquent lyrics of the sex pistols i think that it's it does still feel relevant and there are some parts of it that are just it, it like flows into each other well it's really f- satisfying to sing so i'll agree with the three and a half and sorry i jumped out of turn <laughs> that's okay i'm gonna do a three okay um yeah i was astounded i thought i decided to look up the lyrics to this just because i was like 
I, I you know, I got strange fruit. I quote unquote have Luai Luai. You know, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Let me look up these lyrics to just make sure that I know what what he's winching about. That's Britishism. And I got to f- where the flowers in the dustbin, and I was like, Wait, what the hell? These are these are really good. What's going on? And then I get to the hook. God save the queen. We mean it, man. And I'm like, yeah, all right. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> like, I mean, if you have to say you mean it, but like, yeah, the, the lyrics of this are, are astoundingly great. I was really, really kind of blown away by um, how good they were. So uh, I agreed with a three and a half. Man, I expected to be scoring the Sex Pistols a lot lower, I gotta admit. That <laughs> is, this is really kind of blowing my mind. But if we want to move to Will You Love Me Tomorrow, I mean, I think that it succinctly paints a scene. I think that it kind of coyly describes a situation that if you aren't, let's say you're a kid, and you're me, and you're listening to this, and you're like, this sure is great. And then you're me later, and you're like, ooh, this sure is about sex, huh? Um, <laughs> I think that both of these, both of those takes are, you know, it is great, of course, and it is about sex. But, like, I think that it, it can be, like, will you love me tomorrow after we get back from holding hands, you know, in a public place within view of our parents? Or will you love me tomorrow after, you know, I wake up in your bed and stuff? I think that it it is ambiguous enough to be kind of universal and Mm -hmm. also definitely about one thing enough to be kind of racy and exciting. And I think, like I said, it's succinctness is really what gets to me. And so I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a three and a half because I can't stand the thought of rating Carol King lower than Johnny Rock. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I think that... The there's definitely some sort of patriarchy, heteronormativity kind of stuff that's embedded in this song for sure. But I actually think that really listening to the lyrics for the first time in a while, like I hear this song all the time. I like the song, but really listening to it for this podcast, I think that they've actually aged pretty well. I think that the emotional plight of a sexually liberated woman hasn't changed that much in 50 years. I think a lot of the things that she's worried about in this song are still things that people worry about when they have sex with somebody and, you know, what are you really after? And I think all of that does age better than I thought it would, for sure. I was surprised at how much I still found, like, emotionally resonant in a way that I didn't think that I would. So I'm going to give it a three. Yeah, I agree with Winnie's point that this is a clear indication that we have not successfully dismantled the patriarchy enough. We are falling behind (laughs) because it is still very relevant. uh, That Like, will you respect me in the morning? And also the like, what are you after? You know, and but also just like James was saying, I do think there's a universality, not just to the like, nervousness of like having sex with somebody and being vulnerable like that and like what's going to happen afterwards but also just of the omnipresent fear of losing love that love can be transient and love can end and when you feel the real intensity of it there's always that fear of it going away and I think that this song does evoke that well and I think it's an incredibly singable song I don't think it's the most eloquent song that we have here but I do think that it's a very evocative so I'm going to agree with the three. David, what did you come up with? Oh, I came up with a four. Uh, This song tells a story. And if anybody has listened to the show long enough, you know I am a sucker for a story. (laughs) But most importantly, it tells a story from a female protagonist's perspective. 
that for the time does not feel overly saccharine or hacky. Yeah. It feels mm-hmm. real. Now, mm-hmm. there's a reason for that because a woman co-wrote it and a very strong female songwriter and figure for at that with Carol King. The lyrics themselves, the actual words, there is no mention of gender in them, which really makes it interesting from a perspective of just studying it as poetry. It is very, it's structured almost intentionally to never mention who might be singing this in their voice. And I think that's foresight Mm -hmm. on Goffin and King to be like, anybody could sing this song and it would still mean something. And it would still be this same story with the Shirelle's version of it. It's a very specific story, but it could be any kind. There's something so beautifully simple and yet so perfect in the rhyming of it. I mean, is this a lasting treasure Mm -hmm. or just a moment's pleasure? Can I believe the magic in your size? Rhyming with eyes. Mm -hmm. The rhyming structure of this song is just so dead on the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, for me, it's just it's perfect lyric writing it really is yeah it feels very satisfying the rhymes without feeling overly rhymy so and i should say jerry goffin was the one who wrote the lyrics for this not carol king that's something yeah. i forget yeah. but i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure she had input they were a team the whole way so right. right well normally what i do here is talk about the producers of the songs and then we go into the production however um, I just want to check real quick if either of you Nelsons are going to be talking specifically about the producers of the song or just going into the production. I have stuff about the producers and the okay. producers. Yeah, I have some stuff about the producers. Okay, so I will talk about the ones of David and I and then let you guys do your thing. Will You Love Me Tomorrow was produced by Luther Dixon. His songs achieved their greatest success in the 1950s and 60s and were recorded by Elvis, The Beatles, The Jackson 5, B.B. King. Jerry Lee Lewis, Dusty Springfield, Jimmy Reed, and others, as well as a group you might have heard of called the Shirelles. He did, you know, uh, Will You Love Me Tomorrow. He did the B-side, which was called Boys, which was on the first Beatles album. He did Soldier Boy. He did all sorts of late 50s, early 60s songs, 16 Candles, and stuff like that. He seems to have come from a a doo-wop background and just really capitalized on that until, weirdly enough, the Beatles sort of were like, all right, but for serious, let's do this thing now. And then Sex Pistols were produced by two people, as what was linked on the on the Wikipedia, a guy named Bill Price, who he worked with The Clash, the Sex Pistols, Guns N' Roses, The Jesus and Mary Chain, The Water Boys, Mott the Hoople, and Pete Townshend's younger brother, Simon Townshend. So he was that guy in England in the 60s. He engineered major albums of the 1970s and 80s, including The Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's The Sex Pistols, and he mixed... Harry Nilsson's Without You. And then Chris Thomas was a record producer who worked with the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Procol Harum, Roxy Music, Badfinger, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Pete Townshend, Pulp, and The Pretenders. And he also uh, produced breakthrough albums by The Sex Pistols and In Excess. And he also worked on the, I'm sure you're going to mention this, David, he worked on the initial sessions for How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb by U2. I'm just joking, I doubt that you'll mention nope. that. Nope. Okay, so, <laughs> Whitney... Talk about the production of Luai Luai. Yeah, so a couple interesting things. First is the recording session cost $50 and the band split the cost. Hell yeah. <laughs> the other thing is the producer for Louie Louie was Ken Chase, who was a local radio personality on AM Rock Station, and he owned a teen nightclub that hosted the Kingsmen as their house band. 
the engineer for the session was the studio owner. So this could not have been more low budget. The person who produced it, literally, like, they were the house band for his nightclub. There was not an actual engineer, it was the studio owner himself. But there's a really interesting quote from when Jack Eli died. His son was interviewed by somebody and um, he said, my father would say, we were initially just going to record the song as an instrumental. And at the last minute, I decided I'd sing it. <laughs> when it came time to do that, however, he discovered that the sound engineer had raised the studio's only microphone several feet above his head. So he stood <laughs> in the middle of the musicians and they were like, well, I guess we'll just go for a live feel for the recording. <laughs> and so he talked quite a bit over the years about how he had to stand on his toes lean his head back and shout as loudly as he could just to be heard over the drums and guitars into the microphone, which is a different version of the sort of like wall of sound producing that I, you know, talked about a little bit with Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow and that I actually don't super love in a bunch of older songs. Like I'm not super into the Phil Spector sound, but I think that's part of the reason why it's so hard to discern what's happening in this song. If you actually watch uh live performances of this song it's easier to understand what they're saying because he's not literally standing on his toes with his screaming head back trying into to get a as mic close as physically possible <laughs> screaming into a mic i think that's a big part of the reason why the song sounds the way it does and why the pronunciation is the way that it is i definitely don't think that the production of this song is top notch i think it's the most slapdash part of all of this because the music and the lyrics and everything else sort of came together in a serendipitous way. But I think the production itself led to the biggest downfall of the song, in my opinion, which is you can't understand a single thing that he's saying. <laughs> so it definitely does, I think, have some of that electric energy that we were talking about of just like capturing something because it was such a last minute decision to lay down words with the track of not just do an instrumental and then they didn't have a microphone set up. And I think the slapdash way that everything was put together has its charm and is part of why the song still like slaps the way that it does. But I also think that the production is just not, not as strong. So I'm going to do a two and a half here. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, to say for sure. Cause this song does slap. Which is kind of amazing considering how haphazard everything about this song is. Mm -hmm. So I'll agree with it too. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give it a three and a half. Okay. I think that haphazard production is what created the magic of this song. Like, I think yeah. above everything, the fact that nobody knew what the hell was going on in that studio and the fact that they managed to get a sound that kind of sounded like nothing else at the time out of what is a pretty standard-ish song becomes this gigantic hit because nobody in the room knew what the hell they were doing. I love that story of it. And I think it's, mm -hmm. it's really responsible for a lot of the sound. So I'm actually going three and a half for it. Okay, I'll take it. I love the idea of how badly was it produced? Well, the FBI investigated it because no one could understand the lyrics. Wait till Whitney tells you how long the FBI investigated it for, because that's the intense part. Yeah, I still part. have more to say in that front. When we get to the, the controversiality part of the uh, judging, I have more to say there. I always approach production as, does it sound like they wanted it to sound, or does it sound sort of like a mess? <laughs> 
and this one, <laughs> I'm not sure because it feels like it's that's the same answer. <laughs> I think that they, I I can't imagine a better produced Luai Luai sounding cooler. I think it's amazing how awesome it sounds because they were sort of like, yeah, this ought to be the right microphone height. Let's not change it. At all. Let's just hit that one take and get going. Everyone ready? Let's go. Hey, wait a second. No, no, no. We're already recording. I think that the the opening of it is iconic and it has an amazing sound that is somehow unlike anything else, but also sounds exactly of its time and, and it's just wild. I'm going to give it a three because they got really lucky, <laughs> but I think that... I, I think that something really cool in the production is is going on, and it, I can't imagine it, it if it was produced more, let's say, competently. <laughs> <laughs> it's sounding any cooler than it does, so I'm going to give it a three. All right. All right. So the plan for the way this song was produced was really a reflection of it got famous being performed as a live song. So Barney Josephson, the founder of Cafe Society in Greenwich Village, New York's first integrated nightclub, was where Billie Holiday, you know, kind of made her career. He heard the song and introduced it to Holiday. Uh, although some reports say that Robert Gordon, who is directing Billie Holiday's show at Cafe Society, was the one who introduced it to her. But Holiday first performed the song at Cafe Society in 1939. Uh, she said that singing it made her fearful of retaliation, but because its imagery reminded her of her father, she continued to sing the piece, making it a regular part of her live performance. Because of the power of the song, Joseph Josephson drew up some rules. Holiday would close with it, the waiters would stop all service in advance. The room would be plunged into darkness except for a single spot on Holiday's face, and there would be no encore. During the musical introduction to the song, Holiday <laughs> stood with her eyes closed as if she were invoking a prayer. Josephson said people had to remember Strange Fruit, get their insides burned by it. So when they were trying to capture this for a recording, that is part of why it has the 70-second introduction. They recorded this with Frankie Newton's eight-piece Cafe Society band for this session. And because Gabler worried the song was too short, and if you got right into it, people wouldn't have time to really feel it, he asked pianist Sonny White to improvise that 70-second introduction on the recording to, to try and recreate some of the same feeling that they did by, like, darkening the restaurant and stopping all movement and stuff like that, to, so that you were really drawn in and paying attention by the time she started singing. It was recorded on April 20th, 1939. Gebler worked out a special arrangement with Vocalization Records to record and distribute the song. Uh, one of Holiday's regular songwriters claimed that the arranger Danny Mendelssohn rewrote Mirapol's tune, which he uncharitably dubbed something or other alleged to be music. Um, <laughs> so while his lyrics were genius, apparently his original arrangement was not. She recorded... Two major sessions of the song at the Commodore, one in 1939 and one in 1944. It was the 1939 recording that eventually sold a million copies, despite it being banned, in time becoming Holiday's biggest selling record ever. So I'm going to give it a three and a half for production. All right. So, yeah, well, I think that the pared down nature of the song, it, it hurt it for me in the music category. I think when you're looking at it from a production of the song standpoint it really really helps it 
I think that the way that they made it sort of soulful and romantic, but dirge-like at the same time, and mm-hmm. the way that the sort of like low-key quietness to it, I just think that it this is where it really plays for me, where it didn't with the music What when I gave it a two. So I'm giving it a four in production. Right. Same. It's so theatrical. It's so dramatic. Yeah. And it's all because of the very specific choice of the producers. It's also related to the fact that there are only two pieces of musical accompaniment and so much empty mm-hmm. space left. And that is a huge part mm-hmm. of production. Yep. Yep. I love not only that, but there's also all these little touches, you know, between the fact of when the trumpet is brought in, how soft the piano plays, but also at the very end when we end the piano run to slam down on the piano right at the end. That little choice makes such a huge difference in the tone of the song. And that all comes back to a producer with a very keen and subtle eye, but knowing that those touches were going to elevate it beyond just this sort of nightclub song. It's a four. All right. I think that the production of this is so cool. Mm -hmm. And everything everyone is saying is so correct. Nothing sounds like it. Everything's intentional. Yeah, I'm going to give it a four as well. Oh, right. David. We forget probably the third producer on this, which is Malcolm McLaren, even though he gets no credit on any (laughs) of it. But, you know, it's basically (laughs) his band. I don't know how you would produce this song any differently. That's not to say that I think it's perfect, but I don't know what you do different. Everything is loud. Everything is right up front. Nothing feels like it was left back. The only thing you really can't hear is the bass, and the reason they buried it is because Sid was fucking junked out (laughs) there is something magical about the way this is produced and there is something more elevated than you know those once you get to london calling the clash records sound really good but those that first clash record is kind of you know it sounds like a garage band from garage land but you know the pistols always had with nevermind the bollocks this really strong sense of production identity I'm going to go with three and a half because there does feel like there's something missing. I think maybe just in terms of budget, in terms of what they had the resources to do. But I but I don't know what else you would do differently. Okay. Whitney? Yeah, I think that when you're talking about it in terms of like intentionality, what did they intend it to sound like versus what it does sound like, I think it's pretty high up there. I think for uh, a punk song, the production on this is is pretty great. I also don't know what I would do to change it. I don't know if I would consider it perfect, um, but I can't think of anything that I would do better. I'm going to give it a three and a half. Yeah, I mean, my fe- my feelings are basically the same. <laughs> so I'm going to give it a three and a half, too. I think it doesn't feel like a perfect, perfect song to me. And yet I don't know what I would do. Of course, I'm not a music producer. This is not anywhere near my range of expertise. But um, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to give it a three and a half. I'm going to give it a three. I think it sounds really great and modern. Here's something. I'm going to give it a three. Uh, unless, David, you can answer me this riddle. Is it at all possible that there's a remastered version on Spotify? I don't think they've ever remastered this album. I think they've just left it as is. I'm going to give it a four. Because uh, that sounds great if if it's not... I mean, like, it sounds modern and like it could be produced by a middling punk band today, which means that as arguably one of the first punk bands, it sounds really incredible. So I'm going to give it a four. I think it sounds great and... 
listening to it when I bought the CD for the first time and listening to it now, nothing's changed. Yeah. Even if they remastered it, okay. nothing has changed on how it sounds. Right, right. It just sounds so modern in its production that I was sure that it was like someone got a hold of it in 2006 or something and was like, let me do some making this sound more modern. I think... Um, but if not, then... Wow. I think Johnny Rotten would literally have an aneurysm if they tried to do that. Oh, you're right. You're right. That I hadn't been, I hadn't considered. Uh, he, boy, he sure is. He would go a, a character. He would huh? go on a. <laughs> he would go on a press tour telling literally everyone to smash those copies and buy the original. Because that's just the he kind would. of guy he is. <laughs> just a just a, a uh, just a ball of joy. <laughs> Okay, so Will You Love Me Tomorrow, I think it could sound better. I think the fact that it doesn't sound better, I, I don't think that I'm ever listening to it being like, boy, I wish this sounded cleaner or had less stuff going on. I am also a sucker. I tend to be suckered in by wall of sound type stuff. And so that is something that I have to live with. That's a struggle that I'm going through. Um, <laughs> but I think that, I don't, so I'm conflicted because, like, I feel like it could sound cleaned up, but sort of like with the Kingsman, I feel like cleaning this up would do it maybe a bit of a disservice. And if this had been recorded in like the '80s and like by some you know hotshot producer and it had sounded all everything was sounding perfect and everything was great, I think it would have been like, yeah, this is no, this is no, this is this is just another whatever. But because it was recorded when it was with the production values being what they were, I think that makes it have that classic sound. I'm going to say, th- I'm going to say three and a half. I mean, I, I really <laughs> kind of already mentioned this. The wall of sound production style doesn't super work for me. Damn you, Phil Spector. Um, <laughs> In many ways. Even, even some of my, well, yeah, I mean, he's for a lot of other reasons too, but, but just. Like, even some of my favorite songs are in that style, and I wish that they were not, and I don't know what any of them would sound like if they were not. It just doesn't work for me. So, I do think, however, this is a really great song, and I do think the elements come together, even though I didn't love the strings part, I don't love the wall of sound part, I think it still is one of my favorite songs. It's definitely up there in songs that I love, so I think it's going to get a three from me, because I do think in, like, when you're talking about in the middle of stuff, rather than a two and a half or so, I do think that it it still pulls it out in the end, even though it's a bunch of things that I don't necessarily think work, the song still does, which says a lot, so it's a three. There's a lot I really like about this song, even though I'm not like 100% a wall of sound person myself. Um, I do like the strings that Whitney doesn't like. I, I think that they play into the like operatic nature of the song and the story. I really like the bridge in this song. So I'm going to give it a three and a half. All right. I want wall of sound on this song because it's not really there. Wall of sound to me means those deep, bassy drums and, and you know, the full just giant swell orchestra behind it. I'm a Ronettes fan all day long. And yeah, Phil Spector's a total crap bag who deserves to rot in <laughs> hell. But God, I love his sound. I actually think part of the problem with this song is it sounds chintzy. And that's not because of the music or the musicians. It's because of the quality of recording that they had. I think if this song had been recorded like three years later, it would sound impeccably perfect. But because of 
the limits of technology when they recorded it and whatever budget they had when they recorded it, it is sounding more and more aged and fading, like it's crumbling away, which I don't think is necessarily bad. But I think if you just had another few years and a little more budget to it, there'd be some more depth underneath it. And it's missing mm-hmm. that for me. I went two and a half. Okay. Whitney, would you like to talk about the re-listenability to this very re-listenable Luai Luai? Uh, I mean, it's hard to get better in re-listenability than, than Louie Louie. It's so catchy and summery, and I mean, it's I don't even really have much to say in this category other than it's a four in re-listenability for me. It's just, it's such a such a great song, and it's so... I've never seen it come on anywhere from, you know, like a grocery store to a carnival to a DJ putting it on somewhere. And like everyone always sings along and grooves along and gets up and dances. It is just a super re-listenable song. So (laughs) four for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's incredibly groovy. It's incredibly danceable. I think, you know, there was a study done a little while ago about the popularity of like techno music that was in foreign languages and the popularity of that. And part of the supposition behind it was that because there are words, but you don't understand them, you can project whatever you want into it. So you can like still sing it, but you don't know what it means. So it can be whatever you want. I think there's a huge aspect of that to this song. Um, and it is incredibly re-listenable and it's totally a four. <laughs> I was dancing while I was listening to it earlier. Me too. It's a four. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a four for me, too. Uh, just a quick story time. One time I was at a teen club, and this band played this song for, like, had to be, like, 90 minutes, yeah, and like it just an didn't get Yeah, it was, like, an hour and a half or so, and it was just really, really great. I wonder whatever happened to them. <laughs> All right, Strange Fruit, re-listenability. So this is kind of, I mean, I think this is probably the lowest scoring category for this song. But I mean, I yep. think it's its a weird thing because this is me understanding, because I find this song incredibly re-listenable. Like, I will listen to this song a bunch, but I understand that that is not a universal experience. And that this song is kind of sears your soul, so that's not necessarily a comfortable thing to re-listen to a bunch. So I would say it's a two. Yeah, it's also a two for me. It's just too heavy to listen to regularly great song but just i can't i can't re-listen to it regularly i gave it a two and a half it won me over a bit i don't think i'd ever really sat down and listened to this version in more than maybe pieces i love the way it sounds but again it is so so hardcore in what it's talking about that it is the ultimate mood song you have to be in the right mood to listen Mm -hmm. to this song Mm-hmm. So I went. I, I gave it a little higher because I really did get drawn in by it. Two and a half. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna give it a two and a half too because like every time I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, boy, there is some man. This this sure does paint a picture of a real crappy time for just a lot of reasons. I'm not gonna put it on like a playlist of like similarly tempoed slow jams it's not it doesn't belong <laughs> on like a mix cd or whatever um if a dj put it on in the club i feel like that would not go over very well is what i'm thinking however every time i listen to it i like it and i like it enough to listen to it again it's sort of really epic mm-hmm. so it, it sort of limits 
like extended re-listenability. Ninety minutes of this song would be just wild. It would win a lot of Oscars, but like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So yeah, I said I said a two and a half because I think that it. I, I I'll re-listen to it like once, and then I need a break and a breather, and then I'll come back to it. But yeah, that's so I gave it a two and a half. Yeah. No, I mean I think this song is a truly truly beautiful thing but it's also kind of horrible but it's like i will never skip it when it comes up randomly on my phone but i have to stop whatever i'm doing while it's playing you know yeah all right god save the queen i'm gonna give it a three and a half i'm gonna shave the half a point only because this is not a good song for if you're like wanting to groove or chill in any way because it's super aggressive but otherwise god it's so catchy it's so catchy it's Mm. so hooky it's got such substance to it that I never really thought I'd say that about the Sex Pistols. Yeah. But, I mean, it's yeah. just it's just really good. And so, three and a half. All right. Yeah, I agree with three and a half. This one's a classic, and I rock out to it every time I stumble across it. I don't think that I seek it out very often, mm-hmm. but I'm always excited when it happens upon me. So I'm shaving off the half a point because very rarely will it end up on a playlist of mine or something like that. But I'm always excited to hear it when I hear it. Yeah, I'm I'm going three and a half. I'm shaving off the half point for the exact same reason that David did is that it's too aggressive to be an every mood song. But it does does make you want to rock out and it's very listenable. Yeah, surprisingly, the theme of this episode for me personally is, huh, Sex Pistols, huh? All right. Yeah, I, I can see why... <laughs> I can sort of get it now. I gave it a three. I, I just, I don't know. It's like, it's good, but like, I get it. Like, they mean it, man. And like, I think that I get that in the first listen. And I don't, it sort of would be like, I like it. And if it was accidentally on repeat, I wouldn't be like, hey, someone fix the stereo real quick. But I'm not sure how often I'm going to be like, let's roll that up again. So I'm going to give it a three. Now, if the stereo was broken on Will You Love Me Tomorrow, I would probably be just fine with that uh, having this playing on a loop for a long time i think i'm gonna give it a four because i think that i feel sort of the same way about it as i do about lou y louie that's not how you pronounce it at all but that is the remaining bingo square so so i'm gonna give it a four for uh for re-listenability yeah i think that this one is is maximum re-listenability for me i have not scored it as high as I would have guessed. Like, if you said, will you still love me tomorrow? I would have been like, oh, that's a great song. I would score it super high. But when I was actually breaking it down, there were places where I surprised myself with right. threes instead. But it, definitely it's a four for me in re-listenability. I love this song. This does end up on playlists of mine on a regular basis. Yeah, four for me for sure. Yeah, this song is a four for me too. I think this is a song I'd almost never skip if it came up on random shuffle on my phone. I would put it on playlists. I think of this group of song, it's the one that's the most fun to sing along to for me. It fits multiple moods. Like it's a fun song when you're feeling kind of peppy. If you're feeling kind of melancholy, it works. If you're feeling kind of, you know, sappy, it works. Like it's very re-listenable. It's a four. <laughs> I do think the song is very good. I think it is very much the prototype of that sound. But all this song does is it makes me want to go back to Be My Baby by the Ronettes. I mean, I, I, I that is there, definitely. Every, it's also a great every, song. Every <laughs> one of these songs, all I want to do is go back to Be My Baby with those giant pounding drums and the vocal over it. It's just, that is my quintessential. And so for me, I was tempted to go lower this, but I'm going to go three and a half. I have to do that 
only because every time I hear a girl group song, it just makes me want to go back to be my baby every single time. And that for me is, is just the perfection of the genre. All right. So let's hear some controversiality uh, thoughts <laughs> on Louie Luai. Uh, I did have a yeah. question about how we're rating in this category. Like, the more controversial it was, the higher the rating or the lower the rating? The higher the rating. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. The band, we talked about this. They, uh, how they recorded it was not optimal for enunciation. There's also some speculation, although I couldn't really verify this from, like, the band or direct sources that they were trying to cover up. It is still, like, a sort of somewhat sexual love story. It's not remotely obscene. There is no direct reference to sex. A lot in the same way of, will you still love me tomorrow? Right. It doesn't necessarily need to be sex. It's pretty clear that that's what he's talking about in the lyrics. So there's also some speculation that they were slurring the lyrics on purpose, even during the live shows and stuff, when you didn't have the situation that led to him screaming above his head. (laughs) But it was the beginning of a 31-month-long FBI investigation. I love it. Because... Such a long investigation. I know. So many, like, grown-ups and radio stations were convinced that they were hiding obscenity in the slurred lyrics, and there is no obscenity. It's non-existent. The investigation ended without a prosecution. Although, ironically, the recording does notably include the drummer yelling fuck after dropping his drumstick at the, I think it's like 54 seconds in. He drops a drumstick and yells fuck. Uh, You can't really hear it unless you're looking for it. And the FBI didn't even know that that was in there. So, And they studied it for 31 months. So it's definitely not a thing. But that is the only thing that is wrong with it in, as far as language goes. It was such a fad, this whole FBI investigation and radio stations banning it because they thought there was some secret, obscene message in it, became part of the reason why the song was such a hit. There, It was a fad for a while in schools that crumpled pieces of paper that were professing to be the real lyrics to Louie Louie was circulating among <laughs> high school teens. It was like a meme before the internet where it was a thing that everyone who was in high school at the time that this song was popular remembers people saying these are the real lyrics to Louie Louie. And just as far as it being banned on radio stations, in Indiana, it was personally <laughs> prohibited by Governor Matthew Welsh. <laughs> oh, He personally stepped in and said, no radio stations in Indiana are going to play this. I'm the governor and I say so. (laughs) Um, But the actual real lyrics themselves are not controversial at all. So it stirred up quite a bit of controversy. It still is something that people think is a thing. Like, you can still talk to people and it's like still an urban legend that Louie Louie hides obscenities in it. (laughs) Even though it doesn't. So I think that there's some element of the legend of its controversy living on beyond the song. But it's also, there's nothing obscene in the song except for the drummer yelling fuck in the background. (laughs) So I don't know. I think I'm going to give it a three. I was going to give it a two and a half, but there's just something so heartwarming about the whole story of this song. And I just love it so much. And there's like... There's just like little rapscallions recording a song really, really, really fast 
with like no expertise and it caused this huge sensation and the FBI studied it for almost three years and it's just like, I'm going to give it a three just because I'm so, so tickled by the controversy, even if it's not that controversial that I just can't score it. I was going to go right down the middle and do a two and a half, but I think it bumped it up to a three as I was telling you guys about it. (laughs) (laughs) Was it just one dude for 31 months or did you have any idea about how many agents they had? That I don't know. That I didn't see in any of my research. I really hope it was just one guy. <laughs> just listening just like to this song over and over, and over again. Almost three years. He yeah. has some comments on the re-listenability of this song. <laughs> How was your day, honey? Well, I listened to that song a bench for eight hours. Really loudly. Um, I need a drink. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting how determined, like we touched on earlier, how determined everybody is to find something dirty in this song, to put something scandalous into it, which I think is interesting. But there isn't really anything that scandalous in it, so I'm going to go with a two and a half. I'm going a three. The story is so epic. It is. (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they also investigate it for possible, like, communist messages and stuff like that, too? Like, it wasn't just the obscenity the CIA and the FBI were convinced they must have some sort of subversive message in there as well. I mean, that was just an impulse by near the register during those years. It was like, yeah, may as well investigate it for communism, too. J. Edgar Hoover was a wild dude. <laughs> so, what started it was the claims from, like, parents and teachers in radio stations that there was obscenity that they didn't know if it was in there or not. My guess is that as soon as the FBI got involved, they were like, well, they're hiding something because we can't decipher anything that's being said in these lyrics. That must have that must have happened like a year and a half in where they're like, well, clearly that's not the issue, but something's wrong. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's such a wacky story. Guys who basically were just going to record. I mean, I know they were in a studio, but it's basically like they were just recording out of their garage. They never expected it to be anything other than maybe a local. Mm-hmm. Hit. And all of a sudden they're mm-hmm. like world sensations because of this ridiculous controversy it's a three i'm gonna give it a two and a half because like it's ridiculous that they spent that long on it i would like does anyone know have they made some sort of movie about it because i would love to watch that movie and see how they play the justification of this and anything have we have we had even like a vh1 i don't think so oh man that's something that i'd like to see Maybe it I mean, I think it hasn't been because there's, like, no resolution to the story. Give it to someone that's like, can find the comedy in it, because I think it's a hilarious, but also sort of, like, really chilling that we were using FBI resources for three years mm-hmm. to do, to listen to this, you know, pop single. I'm going to give it a, a two and a half, I think I said, because it's like they manufactured controversy and they kept, like, tilting at windmills. There was nothing there. So I think that it's interesting but I think I'm going to give it a two and a half because I think that the controversy was in their own minds. All right. uh, Strange Fruit seems pretty straightforward. Uh, Lindsay? Yeah. So Strange Fruit was blacklisted in the U.S. for being too controversial with its graphic depictions of lynchings of African-American people. Um, And people were not comfortable with that, shockingly. (laughs) Holiday approached, uh, like I said, she had a hard time getting this even made. She approached her recording label Columbia about the song, but the company feared reaction by record retailers in the South, as well as negative reactions from affiliates of its co-owned radio network, CBS. So Holiday 
producer John Hammond also refused to record it, so she turned to her friend who we talked about earlier, Milt Gabler, whose Commodore's label produced alternative jazz, and she sang it for him a cappella, and it made him cry. And so he was yeah. like, uh, yeah, this movie to tears, we're doing it. So uh, to their credit, Columbia gave Holiday a one-session release from her contract so she could record it because they had refused it. Not long after this was recorded, Holiday quit Cafe Society in August of 1939, and she took strange fruit with her like a woman carrying a grenade. In <laughs> Washington, D.C., a local newspaper wondered whether it might actually provoke a new wave of lynchings. At New York's Birdland, the promoter confiscated customers' cigarettes, least the fire Firefly glow distract from the spotlight's intensity. Um, people were searched sometimes before going into a performance where they knew they were going to sing it because they feared violence. Some promoters ordered her not to sing it, and so Holiday added a clause to her contract guaranteeing her the option that she <laughs> could sing it anywhere that she performed. She didn't always exercise the right, but she made sure that she had it. Uh, she did say, I only do it for people who might understand and appreciate it, she told radio DJ Daddy O'Daly. This is not a June Moon Croon <laughs> tune. So, oh, um, yeah, which I think is great. <laughs> Nina Simone, who would later do a cover of it, said that this is about the ugliest song I have ever heard. Ugly in the sense that it is violent and tears at the guts of what white people have done to my people in this country. It is a radioactive thing. It is, uh, you know, to this day, I think it's interesting. Um, Rebecca Ferguson was contacted by Donald Trump's team about singing at his presidential inauguration. And her <laughs> response was that she would accept his invitation on the condition that what she would sing was strange fruit. And they, <laughs> they turned her down, unsurprisingly. So that just shows that to this day, this song has that kind of power. It is still provocative. It is still protesting what it intended to protest. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's a four. I don't think you get much more controversial than this song. Yep, I am also giving it a four. I think that it's so overt in the violence and the imagery and the just like the the sort of the all of the senses that it invokes, like when it talks mm -hmm. about smell and it talks about what things look like and it just gets everything involved in a very visceral way about very violent and gruesome and needless deaths that I think that of all of these it by far holds up as being the most controversial for me now like I understand people not wanting to hear this song I would be stunned if any terrestrial radio station would ever dare to try to play this song yeah, I don't think it's ever right. been. I tried to see if there was it had ever been played on radio, and I couldn't find any information either way. But except that it has longstandingly been banned. I'm sure, like independent radio stations, somebody somebody with the local airwaves has, has probably played it every once in a while. But like yeah. in terms of a mainstream song, it's there's no way to do it, and it's funny because there's no automatic ban language or words in it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, you know, on the surface that would make you think that that's what's going to happen. But the imagery that it's evoking is so powerful that it's never going to be correct for a mainstream audience. <laughs> yeah, it's four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a clear four. I think that's amazing about the Donald Trump inauguration. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have seen that happen because Donald Trump would be like, has the FBI investigated the song? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, well, we're not playing Luai Luai, but yeah, sure, this is the fruit <laughs> song, that'll work. Yes, let's let's listen. 
oh man, that would have been great. But uh, that's that's wild. And and yeah, there's no. I mean, ugh, it's a killer song. I mean, like it's a fantastic song. But yeah, like I would spit coffee I wasn't drinking if I heard it on the radio. So yeah, that's a four for me as well. All right, so God save the queen. So with the song coming out so close to the Silver Jubilee, it is pretty obvious that the BBC and the Independent Authorities Board, which controlled independent radio stations in England, both banned this song from the airwaves. The BBC basically owned the charts in England, and not only did they list this song with a blank line, they refused to put the artist or the name of the song in the charts. (laughs) But it is widely believed, and there is circumstantial evidence to support it, that retailers actually place their own bands on reporting sales for the charts, working Mm. with the BBC to make sure that it never showed up as number one. And they did not count sales from Virgin (laughs) Megastores, which had just recently opened in the UK. So... There is a very potential conspiracy to keep this from hitting number one, and it's widely believed throughout the UK that this was the number one single at the time. Adding to this fire was the attempted performance on the Queen's Silver Jubilee, June 7th, 1977, when the band performed for about 20 people on a barge in the Thames near Westminster. (laughs) After uh, Jaw Wobble, who would go on to play with Public Image Limited, got in a fight with somebody like a cameraman on the boat, they docked, and as soon as they got there, they were the majority of them were arrested. (laughs) And that became the music video for the song. (laughs) Of course. There is promotional footage of them on a barge playing the song as loud as they possibly can to try to disrupt the Queen's celebration. If we're going to put Strange Fruit at a four and in how pointed and untouchable it is by sort of a mainstream outlet, this song has faded on that over time. This is a song that you Mm -hmm. could play on radio. You probably won't, but you could. But at the time, it was a nuclear bomb in England. This song directly went after the monarchy in that institution and resonated with a lot of people. I think that's what was so scary to the BBC and probably the British government was not just the fact that this song came out and was popular, but that it was really resonating. Something was actually hitting people who were really struggling in England at the time. I think I'm going to go at three and a half because it was incredibly controversial. It's just that we don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I'm going to give it a three because I think all of that is true. But I also think, and this is partially my American upbringing, but the British hold on media and the fact that, like, public dissent is something that, like, America is founded on. So it's very much in our, like, core beliefs. And obviously it's getting worse and worse instead of better. But it's ludicrous to me that it was ever controversial as a song. I totally get that it was controversial and that it it was a big deal. But I also think the fact that everything is owned by the government there, so the government's like, you can't shit talk the queen, you, you know, we're going to do this huge conspiracy, because there's nothing in that song that's not something that would have been played on the airwaves much earlier in America. Like, even with stuff that gets censored and didn't get play in America, when it comes to, like, political stuff or talking about somebody, I'm maybe the president would have also been a controversial, Virtual figure depending on when the song came out 
but I don't think it would have been nearly the same amount of controversy or backlash if, if it weren't for the fact that the government controls all of the media there. Right. So I think that, for me, it's, it's definitely a three, but I think I'd take it down that extra half a point because I don't think it ever should have been controversial because it's not that raucous of a song. Like, when you're talking about anarchy, there isn't much of it there. It's right. definitely not pro the monarchy, but it's also not like, you know, we're going to bomb you all in your sleep. It's right. more just like, hey, look out, because we're going to be in charge, and then you'll be fine. It's not, I am right. an antichrist. Yeah. Right. And I am an anarchist. Yeah. yeah. So, I uh, I definitely I think I'm going to knock it down that extra half a point to a three. I don't know. I mean, I think that is coming from a very biased American perspective. I mean, we literally named our leaders presidents because at the time that was a term without a lot of great respect or importance. Like, we wanted to give them a name that did not, like, confer prestige on that role uh, when we were picking it. So, I mean, I I don't think there's a real American equivalent to a monarchy and what that means to talk about a monarchy in that way, especially at that time. So... I'm giving it a three and a half because when you set the bar at strange fruit, it can't be a four. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I gave it a three as well. I think there are some menacing implications, like we're the future, we're your future, no future. So it's like, hey, we're the future and we don't even think that like we are a thing. And so your future is also blanked out. So there's sort of some implications going on there. But it's mostly just sort of like a tantrum a little bit mm -hmm. <laughs> um, without, I mean, it's unfair to compare it to like the Dead Kennedys or there was an Offspring song called Kill the President, mm -hmm. which like is a little bit more, uh, let's say, on the nose <laughs> than this. So I think that there's, it could be more controversial for it being the Sex Pistols and you sort of are like, yeah, whoa, they were in your face and like whatever. And they were, this song is surprisingly just like a like a rock song and kind of like yeah the queen she's not she's not all that great and so i gave it a it's not a, it's not a song that confronts the monarchy it's a song for working right. class people to rally against sure i think sure. that's absolutely right it's not a song that's trying to be directly confrontational and offensive as much as right. it is supposed to be like mates let's go have a pint and talk about how much we hate this shit yeah, it definitely feels like someone writing down the things people are saying in a bar, like on a napkin, and then going off and and like it's it it feels very much like a sort of like yeah yeah she's she ain't no human being oh yeah write that down. <laughs> Will you still love me tomorrow? Is a song that when you say it's on this episode about songs that were banned from the radio, uh, I feel like the correct response is wait what really. <laughs> So I think that it gets a very low mark. I think that America still has, like we said, a problem with people at all, but also women being sexually liberated and being concerned with like, look, I'm probably going to sleep with you, but here are some of my concerns I'd like you to address before we do that. I think that it is a classic and, w and no one would have any trouble playing it on an oldies radio station for septuagenarians to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it gets maybe like a one and a half. And I think that that is actually grading it a little bit high. So I'm going to give it a one and a half because it's, it's not, I think is my answer. So that's what that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to agree with a one and a half. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing about this song that should be taboo. 
But unfortunately, we're we're Puritans in this country, and especially then, and there was. But yeah, there's nothing, I think, offensive about this song, so I'm giving it a one. Hey there, listener. It's James. I'm editing this at 2.30 in the morning, and here's the deal. So at this point, David's microphone cut out for about 20 seconds, and we missed the justification for the last thing he needed to justify. So he gave it a one and a half for reasons probably very like those talked about by the other people. So then we talked a little bit about the 9-11 list, and I only wanted to mention that because we get a cool bit of Lindsay saying this... Correct, because that's Yeah, there's that's a stupid. lot of dumb stupid. shit on that list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And finally, I wanted to say that when we say goodbye, we mentioned that we were on Kids on Bikes, and of course, uh, since we recorded this, that has changed to being called Bike Brigade. So I just want to make that very clear, too. But all the Twitter stuff is the same. Okay, future James, but past James for you, but future James for them, signing off. But I do have the tally, and I am surprised and interested in two things. One, I didn't lose this time, which is really cool. <laughs> and two, uh, the Sex Pistols came in second place, which astounds me. And they only yeah. lost by half a point, which is oh, wild. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, in fourth place was Luai Luai with 53 and a half points. Third place was my song, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, with 62 points. In second place was God Save the Queen with 68 points. And I wrote down at the beginning of this, if Strange Fruit doesn't win, I will eat my hat. So <laughs> I eat my hat. I don't Strange mess around, Fruit guys. With... I'm yeah. straight for the most controversial piece of culture in the <laughs> 20th century, probably. Uh, I mean, maybe not, but it's on the top 10 list. Yeah. So congratulations, Lindsay. Thank you. You brought the, I almost said you brought the fire. <laughs> you brought a very good song. I brought the intensity for sure. We could yes, that. the intensity. There we go. That's something that doesn't make me feel gross. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for, for being on our show. Would you like to tell our listeners where they can just mainline your amazingness uh, just as quickly as possible. Well, Whitney does about 17 podcasts. No, but the podcast yep. that we do together, our main show is Historical Hotties, which if you've just listened to this show, then it's you're pretty familiar with the format, except <laughs> we are talking about different categories of historical figures. So, you know, anything from aviators to magicians to civil engineers. And then we figure out who is the hottest in history. Yeah, instead of figuring out the best song, we figure out which of those people is the sexiest. So <laughs> that is is our whole steez. And if you are interested in any of the other bajillion podcasts I do, I'd just say follow me on Twitter, Whitney underscore Nelson, N-E-L-S-E-N. And I post stuff from all my other podcasts there. Keanu Reeves and Fast and Furious and video games and a whole bunch of stuff. So I'm Lindsay Nelson on Twitter. and It's mostly just gelato. <laughs> uh, and that do not downplay that I swear to god Lindsay <laughs> I will say Cool Breeze Over the Mountain is like my number one favorite movie podcast oh thank I have to say I feel like your podcast somehow brought about the renaissance of Keanu Reeves like oh, I really feel boy did like we hit the zeitgeist yes we yeah. got in a moment there. for sure we, we did I don't think any of us knew it was coming but like all of a sudden everywhere you turn he's doing interviews and there's articles about the greatness of him and and then john wick 3 just came out and he's just literally everywhere and he's doing crazy stuff and he's secretly funding children's hospitals and he's like chartering vans for like flights that break down and 
in Barstow to get everybody down to LA and all kinds of crazy stuff. There is like a Keanu renaissance happening and we somehow managed to sneak in there <laughs> at the exact time that that's happening. It's wild. It feels clairvoyant. So <laughs> it does. congratulations it's, on it's that. All, that's it, that's all Andrew. I had nothing to do with that. That was his idea. <laughs> I did immediately though, within two minutes of seeing the post, I was part of the podcast. I immediately jumped <laughs> in there and I was like, you have to put me on this. What do I have to do? <laughs> I need to be part of this because the second I saw it, I was like, Oh man, Keanu Reeves is dope and that's going to go really well. And so I saw, I knew a good idea when I saw it. Amazing. Yeah. Well, David, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Big Macintosh on Twitter. And, uh, you can also hear a bunch of shows I'm on at Macintosh and Mod. You can also check me out on at Kids underscore Bikes. Um, on the Kids on Bikes actual play <laughs> podcast. And I'm just out and about. I, talk about stuff constantly twitter's the best place to find me though i would say the same thing for me i am at unabashed james um i do kids on bikes i do this i have a, a blink 182 podcast that is uh gearing up for a second season once they announce when that new album is coming out and i basically just try and you know weasel my way onto any podcast that will have me but i always retweet and post and promote things that i'm on and things that i'm not on that i think are awesome at unabashed james and of course you can follow us for this podcast at track cast and you can email us at I think it's trackmeetcast at gmail.com, but I'm not sure, but I think that's it. Nope, you got it. Cool. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, Whitney and Lindsay, so much for, for joining us on your show that we stole. And also <laughs> thank for, you for having um, us. Showing us mercy. <laughs> <laughs> at some point in the future, we will call on you for a favor, and uh, you okay. have to and fulfill we, whatever that is. We can't say what that favor we will be. We can't say what it is. Oh, boy. That's just the rule. I mean, that's just the rule. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but un until next time, hashtag song fight. <laughs>